Welcome to Language Chats. This is a podcast for language lovers in Australia and beyond, where we share our experiences, as well as stories from other Australians and a few international guests, of learning, working with and using other languages. I'm Penny. And I'm Beck, And we're excited to have a guest with us today. Um, and his name is Stanley Wong. Stanley, welcome to Language Chats. Oh, thank you. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Stanley. And uh, I'm based here in Melbourne and currently working as the principal of Abbotsford Primary School. We are super excited to have you here, not only because you are a fellow Language Lovers AU community member, but also because you are working in bilingual education. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what that means, about your background, your career, and how you got into education in the first place? Sure. Um, I think, you know, I think history is one of those things, you know, when you look at um, at it retrospectively, it all seems to make sense <laughs> now. <laughs> and uh, one of the things I remember growing up is I really liked teaching people. Like I uh, grew up in uh, with uh, lots of opportunities to learn music and I would used to sit all my toys on the sofa and teach them things. Um, and I think it just really helped kind of consolidate everything I was learning at the time myself. Um, and so eventually, I think heading down teaching wasn't a huge surprise. But of course, that journey, there were some key moments that led to me eventually deciding that, that you know, that is the career I want to invest in. Um, so for example, uh, in year 12, um, I met a teacher that completely changed my, I guess, uh, choice uh, for tertiary courses. Um, I was always wanting to go down music. Uh, my dream growing up was to become an orchestral conductor. And uh, in that final year, um, I ended up doing VC English language, which basically is like a high school version of linguistics and absolutely fell in love with the subject. And I realized, wow, there is a science behind not only the English language, but Japanese and French, which I had carried all the way through school. And so that got me really interested in linguistics. So I ended up doing um, a Bachelor of Arts and Bachelor of Commerce and uh, was very invested in the linguistics part of my degree. And then during kind of uni days, I also had an opportunity to be involved in a summer school for students entering the VCE from disadvantaged backgrounds. And I suddenly realized, wow, you know, I grew up in such a sheltered world in the Southeast of Melbourne that I had no idea um, that many students don't have the same opportunities as I do. And so it really challenged me to perhaps reflect on whether where I had got myself to was a result of my own hard work or the fact that I came from certain socioeconomic background that had put me um, in a good stead in the first place. And so that got me really interested in wanting to um, be in the front line of um, tackling educational disadvantage and hence I ended up doing Teach for Australia as soon as I graduated. So that's kind of how the whole teaching route started. There are many elements to it. Um, I've since built a career basically along two tracks. So one around educational disadvantage. That's still something I'm very passionate about, uh, looking at equity uh, or inequity really. Uh, and building my own kind of leadership to tackle problems from, you know, the classroom all the way to more 
system level ones. And the other is language, and that's always been a passion. And so at each step of the my career so far, um, leading to where I am now, it's always been about finding a crossover between the two, I think. It seems like you found potentially the perfect crossover of all of those things in, in what you're doing now. Just to take a little bit of a step back to, to when you were growing up and um, and your experience then. I, by the way, I love how you used to teach your toys. Um, that image <laughs> just in my mind is so beautiful. I feel like that is, as a teacher now, oh, it's so perfect. Anyway, um, <laughs> what I wanted to ask was just about your, your experience learning languages at school. So you said that you had done French French and Japanese through your your own experience um, at school. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what that was like for you growing up? Sure. Um, actually, I I was born in Taiwan and I um, didn't come to Australia till I was ten. And I was part of I guess the early year earlier years of educational reform in Taiwan where they were talking about introducing English into the classroom, but hadn't done so until I left. So I came to this country without English. And for the first few years, um, I remember having some additional support at school, but uh, very much it was a, a, a really tough journey for a young child to not be able to navigate uh, your way around school very well because of language. So when I entered secondary and my school had both Japanese and French as compulsory subjects twice a week, I discovered I actually had an advantage that uh, others didn't. You know, for this whole time, I felt uh, my learning was, you know, I was stumbling through a lot of things because English was a barrier. Yet when I entered the French and Japanese classroom, I was able to really excel and I I was like the most confident person in class. I got the prizes for those two subjects every year because perhaps I had built a much greater level of metalinguistic awareness than others. You know, there were always interesting patterns I could observe and memorize as well and get hold of very easily. So those two subjects perhaps helped me build uh, a, another identity outside of music, which I was passionate about as well, um, at school. And I think the more you enjoy it, the more you invest time in it, uh, the more it becomes kind of part of you. And so that eventually led to the discovery I was talking about in year 12, when one day I realized it wasn't just about, um, you know, learning more irregular verbs in French (laughs) for French's (laughs) sake, but that, wow, there was a whole science behind this that I hadn't known. Do you think your experience then as, as a child coming to Australia with limited to none, you know, no kind of English, um, language background being thrown into school has really helped you support and empathize with students who are coming to your school now with that kind of similar experience does that bring a different perspective to your teaching absolutely um but i also think there is a really clear difference between um, an experience of learning a language as a second language or additional language versus a foreign language. And I think what's quite um, magical about learning it as a second language um, is that it's never the case 
um, that you only absorb what you have been taught. There is so much input and um, and a functional need of the language for students, whether it is in the playground, in the classroom, or even just building their own identity in this kind of new environment, that the way language proficiency develops there has, has always fascinated me. Uh, and it's still something I don't think I grasp as well as, let's say, the foreign language context. I think when we are teaching um, often, you know, LOAT at school, um, there's that very structured, visible curriculum. And I can almost tell you exactly what my kids will know or won't know because usually it depends 100% on what I have taught or what I have given them as input. Um, so it does, I think, give me this more hypersensitive um, or, uh, or awareness of the kind of experiences uh, young kids like myself um, back then are going through, but I just don't feel as comfortable in perhaps um, in saying that I have grasped the science behind it versus, let's say, if it was in a foreign language classroom. Yep, yep. No, that makes sense. That's a really good point, actually. I don't think I've ever thought of it from, from that way before. Because there was always that magical moment when you suddenly felt like you could function in the society as a migrant child. Uh, and that comes in very early stages too. You know, within two or three weeks, I felt like I was no different to other kids in the playground. Mm. I could follow very well how the four-square game worked and I always knew what to call out if, you know, it hit the line or you went out and that kind of thing. But that meant not, you know, that said nothing about my writing or reading abilities in class, right? Yeah. And then one day when you get to secondary school, um, you're really now uh, learning content and subject areas through English. There was, you know, one day, probably three or four years uh, later, or three or four years after I arrived in Australia, where you suddenly go, I can access, you know, this other world of knowledge through English. And that was like the next step in this sense of achievement I had as a child. And so I think there are these thresholds or these very um, uh, moments, visible moments um but i i just can't tell you exactly for example what was it that tipped me over to the yeah. next stage yeah yeah it's really interesting because the way that you describe it it almost feels like when i suppose when students are needing to learn an additional language for like purely for functioning in society you know and to be able to learn at school and to be able to interact with other people in their community it seems like a much more natural process but it's also for necessity I suppose as well um, whereas when you've got other languages um, which are being taught through the curriculum um, but they sort of are almost at arm's length in a, a student's understanding I suppose of when and how they could use it but they're not using it in the playground and they're not using it necessarily out in the community at that point in time there's a real distinction there in how and why they're retaining the knowledge is that is Absolutely. that something that you would you I resonate advise? with that very much okay. yeah and and I think sometimes that is the um, danger if you like of the way languages are seen um, in schools simply as a curriculum area or one of the subjects that need to be taught is that 
it almost becomes purely an intellectual exercise. Um, and that often in our context uh, paints picture, uh, so paints the picture that languages is a, a luxury um, because I, I've only recently come across a few people who, um, who've wanted to join my online conversation club, which I'm, I think is something we'll talk about a bit later, but they're coming from different contexts where Chinese has become such an important necessity in their country that there is this sense of desperation in learning Chinese that I have never heard in Australia. We've got very grim very quickly, haven't we? Oh, I don't <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, let's switch tacks. Let's talk about Abbotsford Primary and the bilingual program because if I'm correct, it is the oldest Chinese English bilingual program run in a primary school. Is that in Melbourne or in Australia? I'm not sure, but either yeah, in way. in Australia, I think. That's a huge wow. achievement. Mm. Yeah, we've had it since 1984 and I've always enjoyed telling the story of how the program started because we were near the North Richmond public housing and at the time the program wasn't actually a top-down initiative. It was very much a grassroots movement of the families living in the public housing at the time wanting their children to have a better way to integrate into mainstream Australian classrooms. And many of them were Chinese or Vietnamese Chinese um, or Timorese Chinese. And so there was this push for the two neighbouring schools to consider a bilingual program as an optional strand or a separate strand in the school so that they are not going into the classroom completely lost like I was perhaps. And um, that was in the 80s. Now, obviously, starting probably mid-90s and early 2000s, the overall social political discourse in Australia changed so much that we really um, started to look at um, our engagement with Asia and how we prepare our next generation to uh, have the capabilities to interact with Asia. And so many families ask the questions, why is it that my child can't be part of this bilingual program? Now, that seems like a very logical kind of question on surface. But if you, again, retrospectively look at the history of the program, I am pretty sure um, the bilingual program they set up at the time was very much like a transitional program. The aim was not necessarily to walk out being biliterate or bilingual, but probably to walk out uh, like every other monolingual Australian, if that makes Mm -hmm. sense. Yeah. And so it used to be funded almost under like, you know, various categories of disability. It was one of those additional disability funding the school can apply for. And so all of a sudden, you know, in in late 90s and 2000, everyone wanted this disability, um, as I like to phrase it. (laughs) And uh, it grew. Uh, It became more and more popular. And for a small school like Abbotsford, we're a one-building school. We're in this beautiful heritage building. Uh, It was tricky to balance the budget, having to run it like it's two separate schools. And so um, by the time that the bilingual element had grown bigger and bigger, um, the the Department of Education had actually recommended that we become a, what's called like a 100% participation bilingual school. And so if you do choose to come to Abbotsford Primary, then you are part of the bilingual program. And um, that's been the case for the last five to six years. Um, And so now we have a very kind of comprehensive and healthy cohort um, of students 
coming from not just our local school zones, but in fact, it's, we only have a third in our school zone, a third from neighbouring zones and, and a third from all over Melbourne. And so we now have a slightly dem different demographic to the past as well. Um, families are um, very purposeful about their school choices and often very committed to the bilingual education. And that's why they're crossing zones to come here. I can imagine that for sure. Um, in terms of, I guess, the benefits that a bilingual school gives students, what what type of things have you observed or what type of things do you know bilingual education can give to kids with and without Chinese heritage? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, interestingly, 98% of my students are not from a Chinese heritage background. Oh, wow, 98%. Yeah, and I That's think high. It's, yeah. it's very high. high. And I think it's part of the fact that the demographic the demographic of Richmond and Abbotsford has you know, has changed mm -hmm. drastically. Um, the second generation of, or third generation even, of those um, those families we talked about from the public housing, they don't live in the area anymore. Um, and also being an inner suburb kind of um, area, it's highly gentrified these days. So the type of, um, I guess, um, new settlements in these areas are very different. Um, I think in terms of the benefits, it's very clear that um, there are huge cognitive benefits. And this is before we even talked about the fact that a child who attends bilingual school can walk out at least orally pretty proficient by the end of grade six. Even putting that aside, we do see, for example, from NAPLAN data that we are always above average. Now, and when I say above average, we're not talking about the fact that we um, we have a kind of very high socioeconomic um clientele that's actually not the case we are still next to the public housing so we we're actually very evenly spread so to overcome you know often the that that strong correlation between socioeconomic statuses and and academic academic achievement um what we have been able to show at our school is um by being involved in the bilingual program it uh, it doesn't matter what kind of um socioeconomic background you're from you can always achieve above average results. And secondly, what's more interesting is 65% of my school comes from a language background other than English. So Chinese and English for them mm. very much are the second and third languages they're immersing themselves in on a day-to-day basis. So I think that's really impressive um, because it really shows that it's not the case that we're overburdening this child with more and more languages and, you know, you've only got X amount of capacity and the more you have to divide into different languages, the smaller <laughs> amount of the achievement. And certainly not the case. Um, and I also think recently, in recent years, because the Sino-Australian relationship has gone rather sour, it's forced the, the discussion around why we should be learning Chinese from a very kind of economic trade-based rational one to one where we are now looking at it as um, purely a language ex learning experience that comes with cognitive benefits that in itself is a, is worthy of an intellectual exercise. You know, it's one that really helps to foster empathy, uh, curiosity and intercultural capabilities. And I think those benefits are often perhaps difficult to measure as such, but anyone who is bilingual themselves or multilingual will know that um, the sensitivities they develop through language learning um, 
is unparalleled compared to, you know, um, someone who hasn't had that successful experience. So I think it's great that these benefits are now coming back to our discussions, almost thanks to the fact that the economic and political ones aren't working well. Mm. Yeah, that's a really good point, isn't it, yeah, Beck? We've talked it about this before, haven't we? The, the um, you know, language policy and the motivations of governments to push particular languages mm. and that kind of thing, and to hear it, you know, kind of turned on its head, particularly talk about Chinese. It's um, yeah, yeah it's, it's really interesting. And of course, we we always, you know, I'm sure that everybody in Australia would like for Australia to have great diplomatic relations with all countries around the world. Um, but interesting that it's had that particular that particular impact because I think, you know, we, we would 100% agree with the the general benefits of just a language learning experience of any kind, no matter what the language is, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter what is put forward as a language for, for people, for young, you know, students to be learning. Just the fact that they get to do that is important. Are there particular challenges that you and your team have found that are specific to teaching and in leading a bilingual school? Yeah, well, in the Australian context, almost all bilingual schools offer what's called a one-way immersion program, which means essentially you're relying on very few native speakers of the target language to immerse the whole school environment. Well, sorry, to immerse the whole school. Um, and we know that that actually means, yes, we are offering a much more intense um, set of opportunities for students to be able to act, uh, you know, to learn and access Chinese, but it's not as, let's say, romanticized or dreamlike as what some people think when they think the word bilingual schools. Um, by definition, 50% of our curriculum time is in Chinese, and that is true. But, you know, kids are only at school six and a half hours a day, and you take out almost an, an hour and a half of um, a recess and lunch uh, and check-ins in the morning. So that's five hours left, and then you slash that in half. It's only two and a half hours. And so, yes, it is a rather intensive program, but when they're not getting any other exposure outside of school, um, f- and t- you know, it, it isn't that much either, <laughs> especially for learning a language that is so different to English or their home language. And so that's definitely a challenge. And I've been working very closely with my team and even uh, getting external consultants to come in to help me think through what are some of the language opportunities we can almost engineer in our school environment so that it isn't just seen as the um, length, the length, uh, the medium of instruction for certain subjects or certain hours of the day, but that it has a place um, symbolically as well as uh, in the yard uh, for it to be used more widely than it currently is. And we know, for example, in the US or in Canada, Often they are able to implement more, um, if you like, artificial enrollment rules to try and make sure that students are, um, there are uh, there's a bit more balance between students coming from English background and the target language background. But I, 
you know, Australia is very different in in the way we approach mm -hmm. inclusion and diversity. Mm -hmm. So that's probably never going to take off here. Um, not in a bad way, because I also think it's so interesting to see that uh, majority of my school actually comes from a third language, you know, <laughs> background. Mm -hmm. And that in itself brings so much more to the school as well. But certainly that co the complexity and the diversity I have, um, I think compromises the amount of target language perhaps uh, opportunities we could offer at school. So that's a tricky one. Uh, and what I've been trying to do is perhaps tapping into the Chinese speaking community in Melbourne a bit more um, in hope that some of them will consider coming to our school, even though it, it might mean committing to um, long uh, commutes in the mornings. Um, because as someone who grew up here with those two languages and I guess two interrelated but not separate parts of my identity, I do want this school to be an environment where that kind of bicultural identity can be fostered in a really healthy way. Um, and I think bilingual education is that most authentic way of um, letting a child grow up in Australia, being able to develop proficiency in Mandarin, but not to become a Chinese person or not to to talk like they are a Beijinger, for example, but to have those that ability to then express themselves as an Asian Australian or Chinese Australian in, in, in its unique way. And that's something I think as a vision for the school, I really hope to um, to move towards. What's it like to look for and hire for teachers in a bilingual school um, that have the capabilities to, to be a part of that program? Yeah, look, um, like we are a state school and so, um, and there aren't, any training courses or pre teacher preparation courses specifically for bilingual schools. So um, really we find that um, there are a few types of teachers. I'd say on the target language side, we tend to find um, those perhaps with a specialization in languages. Uh, we do find those who speak the language but have only done primary generalist training um, and then uh, perhaps those who are second-gen immigrant like myself. These three um, types of teachers are the most, I guess, common, and they all have their own strengths and weaknesses. So it's very much the case that when we are hiring, uh, we look at the background expertise they're bringing in and then really think about perhaps through mentoring, coaching, or additional professional development that they need to almost make up for another side to this whole story that they haven't been exposed to. So, for example, someone with a language specialty who have done that as a method is probably less aware of how primary schooling works versus someone who did primary generalist um, might be less aware of how you scope and sequence um, a, a, lang a language curriculum, for example. So those things we, we tend to need to put in the additional effort to invest into their development. But actually, hiring on the English side is just as difficult. <laughs> it has its own complexities too because I think now it's a, it's, it's a sad reality, but unfortunately the majority of candidates who come for English positions um, don't tend to have another language under their belt. Um, so they would often 
you know, without the right mindset and understanding of how bilingual education works, they could easily be misguided by the fact that, for example, they're getting half the literacy time than they would in another school. But the expectations of, you know, on student achievement um, isn't lower because you're in a bilingual school. So those misconceptions around how do you navigate your role in the overall biliteracy development of the child does require the English teacher to be quite aware of this area uh, in of the literature, um, as well as having the you know a healthy mindset about the role they are um, they play in the school. Because otherwise, you could potentially feel like you're under the Chinese program's shadow all the time. You're you know when parents come to school tour, they're probably less interested in the English side of things. They're probably here because there is a Chinese bilingual program. So there are actually quite a few. Um, issues to consider too for hiring English teachers. That's Yeah, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought of it from that way either. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask Stanley too, how do you go about engaging the parents of the kids and, and how committed do they need to be to the, the bilingual ethos of the school and do they get involved in the Chinese side of things as well? Yeah. Um, to be honest, we're, we're lucky in the sense that um, most parents I have realized over the last 12 months in this role that most parents do their research before they come so they 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 have done like you know um, a very thorough analysis of us versus all the other options they were thinking about um, and so they most of them really know what they're in the program for um, but of course a mo- the biggest struggle with um, engaging parents is the fact that they, they perhaps feel a little bit out of loop when it comes to um, the Chinese side of the learning. You know, they want to be, uh, they want to feel as engaged as they would if it was um, taught in English. So we've had to obviously um, do a lot more explicit communication uh, with parents around the role they can play at home to support, uh, for example, the the homework tasks. Uh, that's being set for subjects taught in Chinese or even helping um, their children to establish and maintain a healthy routine of review and practice at home. We've adopted, for example, a an app that uh, allows them to kind of sit with their children uh, and read Chinese storybooks. Um, but basically the app is interactive. So if you were to say um, tapping on the dog in the park, the dog will bark back or the dog will ask you a question. You know, it kind of replaces the role of the parents that uh, in storybook reading where they might ask additional questions or draw their um, child's attention to another part of the picture. That app helps them fill that role. Um, and then we had to, to be honest, I think that the, the last key one in this is to be able to say very explicitly what our value add is from year to year and that's an extremely difficult one to do um there is no achievement standard as such for the target language um in any of the australian curricula around you know there's no ex- very explicit expectation that by grade two if you were in a bilingual school and you were doing chinese then this is the chinese level you should be um, arriving at and so it does mean that, for, you know, the parents could feel very lost. Um, you know, when you say they can um, read a basic storybook using two, you know, simple sentence structures, is that good enough for grade two? 
they don't know either. And so um, kind of developing our own achievement standards or benchmarking with other bilingual schools, we or, you know, this year we even introduced um, a very quantifiable way to track students' character recognition and character production knowledge. All of those communication strategies uh, have been designed to help parents feel like they 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 have a grasp on how their child is progressing, just as they as they would when they receive NAPLAN results for English and maths, that kind of thing. That's really um, I, I'm quite surprised that there isn't a sort of I guess some more maybe more of a framework or more support for the bilingual schools to to be able to set that up to sort of manage parents' expectations. But it's also really great to hear that the bilingual schools communicate with each other and support each other on that. Um, what other kinds of things do you share um, between the other, I suppose, the, the bilingual school community? Um, to be honest, I think it, even what I have just shared about the connections between the bilingual schools, I would say it's a rather recent phenomenon. I think it's been an opportunity missed. Now, I don't mean it in a in a nasty way because in Victoria we've had a bilingual school network for quite a while and that network in itself is really strong in the advocacy of bilingual schools in um, in Victoria uh, but as you can imagine we're talking about 10 to 11 schools across 10 different languages so there's when we talk about you know like um, framework or resources um it is it is in the case that things are available and even when you have the 10 schools together you are talking about the common grounds of all the bilingual schools which again by default means not very language specific mm-hmm. um i think over the last 12 months one of the things i've been trying to do is to really bring in the network of and this is informal but connecting all the chinese english bilingual programs um in the country so that we can have some regular meetings and opportunities uh, to share ideas and resources, etc. And that's being, um, I guess, a, you know, uh, an opportunity that I think, um, it, yeah, I, I had probably wished there was something already established, um, but the fact that it hasn't also presents um, lots of opportunities for us to see how we can collaborate across state borders. Because, you know, it's interesting in Australia, I think, as a teacher, that school education is is seeing as a state-level jurisdiction um, thing. And so we tend to be so unaware of what's happening across state borders that it's almost sad in a way as well. Um Chinese English bilingual schools are so isolated. One in WA, one in South Australia, um, two in Victoria, um, and I, I I think there are two in New South Wales and two in Queensland. And the fact that it's 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 so hard to get everyone together because we're across this political border in itself is a little bit um, it's interesting. So we mentioned, or you mentioned at the the top of the chat that you have an online Chinese conversation club. And I know that you are super passionate about helping others learn languages, in particular Chinese. Can you tell us more about the club and what you guys do and who comes along? Sure. Um, It started because 10 years ago um, I met a Japanese professor from La Trobe Uni who um, 
said that he had always felt um, a bit sad that once his students graduated and perhaps have even studied abroad in Japan, come back at, with a very high level of proficiency, that they struggle to maintain that if their um, career or their um, or, or Japanese doesn't is no longer a priority in their kind of next stage of life, and so what he wanted to do was just to do uh, just to offer a weekly opportunity to um, get these people together and practice um, higher level Japanese um, in a really kind of casual manner. Um, and I was even though I didn't quite fit that profile at the time, I really benefited from being able to be part of that group. And that group ran for about two to three years. And um, everyone then kind of moved on and uh, many people moved abroad as well. And last year, while I was in hotel quarantine, coming back from overseas, mm-hmm. uh, I suddenly got a message from this professor and said he'd love to run it again online. Um, and so we've started again. And it's just made me think, why why not run a similar thing for Chinese learners as well? You know, like if you look at the number of um you know, firstly, there's been this back of envelope calculation that has been uh, quote often quoted um, in the media that some there are only is it 120 or something? Yeah, some really low number. I don't. Yeah, you don't believe that, do you? Is that's not true, right? Well, I've, I've, um, it has, it does come from a very well respected academic um, I had the opportunity to work with in the past. Um, and it does seem like it was a back-of-envelope style calculation. So <laughs> I'll have to leave it at that. But even if it was, let's say, 10 times the the number, let's say it was 1,200, do you think that's really acceptable for a population of 24 million where Mandarin is actually the second largest language in the country as well? Probably not. Um, <laughs> so I, I don't think the number really matters. I think the message is trying to get across is probably the key. And so it's made me think that, well, over the last 10 years, we've had lots of Hamer scholars, for example, um, that have had the opportunity to study in a Chinese-speaking part of the world. Um, and probably through lots of cross-cultural or, uh, marriages as well or other opportunities, um, there are people who are at an intermediate or advanced level in Australia that just don't have much um, you know, opportunity to practice. And so I thought now that I'm a principal of a school, I, I, I'm not in the front line um, teaching kind of day to day anymore. I'd love to be able to um, do a community project that could um, support those people who do have the passion for Chinese learning, but just, just can't invest that much time and effort into it anymore, at least help those people maintain because those are the people who are probably going to help improve that, that stat <laughs> down the track. Yeah. Yeah. But it also helps me continue to think about um, classroom practice. Yeah. And so that's how it started. Um, it started in February this year and we had a group of probably five to ten that came regularly each week, really from all walks of life. And I think it's a bit like, uh, language lovers there mm. are so many um interesting people and stories that i didn't um expect to have been able to be part of um when i first started the group and we named this group uh which literally means um a gathering of friends of mandarin so that friend component is probably as big as 
being a friend of Mandarin, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. What if it, that's such a fantastic initiative? I think it sounds great. And if I spoke some Chinese, I would definitely go along to that. <laughs> um, I just wanted to check because for everybody, we will pop um, a link in the show notes so that if you are somebody who would like to join Stanley's conversation group, um, you'll be able to find that. Um, Stanley, is this something that's open to anyone around Australia? Do they need to be in Victoria or is it? Is it no, so it's entirely online. And so it's, it started with the five to 10 regulars and we now have 50 and probably a regular attendance of 15 to 20 a week. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's commitment free, uh, as in you don't have to feel like you have to come every week. Uh, and we have a few key principles. So the idea is really... Um, how do we offer um, professional guidance um, but still maintaining a, um, a focus on socialize, socializing? So, for example, it's not a language exchange because how I manage the group is I've convinced four of my um, ex-colleagues uh, in this industry to join in this project because we, we're all very like-minded in how we support learners. Um, and so they're the only native speakers. So every week we have a topic and we will have multiple chances to go into breakout rooms to discuss some of those questions in depth. And during the chat, um, the the facilitators or the, the teachers uh, will offer some support in the chat room, uh, whether it is, oh, you could have perhaps phrased that in a different way or you're missing this vocab, that kind of thing. And the reason that's done in the chat room and not in the actual breakout room conversation is we don't want to break the flow of it so we allowed that to happen naturally but then there is additional support in the chat room if you uh, would like some and Mm so it it kind of combines that element of um, getting professional feedback which we've realized is something intermediate and advanced learners don't tend to get people tend to be to see them as such novelty and they're so excited that someone speaks at a pretty high level that they don't feel comfortable giving them any feedback anymore um and so that's something that's a need that we've definitely observed and certainly i think if you look at the commercial market for chinese learning um there's only ever beginner classes right that that dominates 95 percent of the market and so um we hope that we are trying to create a new format that's very much tailored to intermediate advanced learners oh that's amazing i think that fills a real gap in a lot of people's you know, learning and exposure and, and continuation of their with their studies. It's awesome. Maybe one, you know, in, in 10 years' time, you might have some of your primary school kids come back to your conversation club. You never know. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> I have invited a few that I have taught uh, in secondary. They're now at uni or have graduated to come. Um, but, you know, like, uh, yeah, we, we are definitely open to anyone in the country or outside. We've actually got... Um, one from Guinea, uh, one from Russia, a couple from the Philippines, uh, one from Venezuela and one from uh, Argentina that joins regularly as well. That's awesome. That's fantastic. Global. Yes, yeah, yeah. so, so good. So we'll make sure that there is um, information on that in the show notes. So if you are interested in joining, then please do. It sounds really fun. Um, one more thing just to mention, Stanley, is that we found out that recently you were named one of the 40 most influential Asian Australians under 40 in Australia, um, which is a pretty cool thing Woo-hoo. to be recognised as, we <laughs> must <you>. say. <laughs> what, does, um, what does recognition like that mean to you? 
Um, uh, a lot, actually. I think there was um, there was a stage in my career that I had thought uh, I've probably hit the top. Um, that feeling of um, a bamboo ceiling being very much visible and evident in the education industry was um, hitting me quite hard um, emotionally about if there is a future for me in this country. Um, and so it's part of why I did take a break and I wanted an overseas chapter just to refresh and also gain new perspectives. Um, and so I think that uh, the award has a very kind of personal meaning for me because um, it's uh, it's interesting that Asian Australian families tend to put a, a, a big emphasis on educational outcomes, yet they aren't always willing to um, encourage their children to go into education. So it's a very underrepresented sector, let alone um, at a principalship or um, system leadership level. So I remember sharing the on the day I received the award that the last time I um, I saw the, uh, the name of a principal that had a hint of Asian heritage in it was actually at the uh, Golden Dragon Museum in Bendigo. There was this photo of an Asian principal um, retiring in the in 1950s. And since then, I've never met anyone else. I, I think having come back to Australia now and seeing the new, new um, kind of, I think an ex, a, a even higher level, you know, new level of diversity has been super exciting for me. Um, and I think the general level of acceptance is much bigger as well. Um, uh, and yet every time I am part of a more education-focused um, occasion, I could walk in the room and not see that diversity at all. And I hope this award at least um, makes it visible that it is important for Asian Australians to also contribute to the um, uh, to the education of our next generation. Because if we do want this overall mindset and vibe around um, the bamboo ceiling issue to be tackled, uh, I think as Asian Australians, we also need to do our bit to contribute towards that. So I feel like even though I'm, I've been very... Um, very honoured and happy about being recognised. This award has given my, me this additional sense of uh, mission or to, to some extent a bit of a burden on now feeling like there is uh, there is something along this topic and that I would like to advocate for or do something about. But how, you know, in what form, I haven't figured it out yet. <laughs> the well, next think, chapter. Yeah. <laughs> Although I think you've you've expressed yourself very well there in saying that, you know, this has really spurred you on. I think that's exactly what it's supposed to do. And if that's what if that's the impact that it's had on you, then great. Yeah. <laughs> Huge congratulations. Thanks mm, very much. Well done. Thank you so much for giving up your time to chat with us today, Stanley. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you. No problem at all. It's uh it's always a pleasure to meet other language enthusiasts and um, I hope you know um, some of my um, thoughts and comments or even the, the stories um, can be of an inspiration for other language lovers too.
I'm sure they will be. (laughs) (laughs) If any of our listeners would like to find out more about you or get in touch, is there anywhere particular that they should head to? Yeah. um, My LinkedIn profile is public and open. Um, And our school website in particular, I've put a lot of effort into making as much information as transparent as possible. So um, contact via the school email address, website, social media, or my personal LinkedIn will be appreciated. Great. We'll pop those links in the show notes. Mm -hmm. Perfect. And if you um, would like to, if you're also a language enthusiast um, like Stanley and like us, um, then do um, think about joining our Facebook group, Language Lovers AU Community. Um, That's where we get everyone together and sometimes have a chat and share a few things. Um, But otherwise, you can also find us at languagelovers.com.au and also on Instagram at languagelovers.au and more broadly on Facebook at languagelovers.au. We're everywhere, Beck. We're everywhere, everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we will catch you for another episode in the next fortnight. Thanks again. Thanks, Stanley. Thanks, Stanley. No. Bye-bye. See you next time. <laughs>